The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. It's Matt Slick Live. Matt is the founder and president of the Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, found online at karm.org. When you have questions about Bible doctrines, turn to Matt Slick Live for answers. Taking your calls and responding to your questions at 877-207-2276. Here's Matt Slick. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. This is Luke Wayne uh, filling in for Matt Slick. I'm a colleague of Matt's at the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. You can find us online at CARM.org, that is C-A-R-M dot O-R-G. And I've been working with Matt at CARM for about seven years now. It'll be seven come January. And uh, it has been fantastic to get to be a part of this ministry. If you are joining us for the first time today, this is a a radio outreach of the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, and what we do on this show is we talk about apologetics, which is the branch of Christian theology concerned with the defense of the faith. So if you have questions about the challenges that critics of the faith bring, questions about difficult passages in the Bible, questions brought by um, false religions that, that bring, uh, bring objections and challenges to your faith. That's what this show is all about, to help provide answers, to help dig deep into those things. And so give us a call. We, we want to hear from you. Call us at 877-2276. Again, that's 877-207-2276, and the lines are open. But as I said, you know, Matt's, uh, Matt's out today because he is engaged in ministry. Right now he is working with the Aramaic Broadcast Ministry to preach the gospel and to preach Christian truth across the world uh, to people from, coming out of Muslim background and uh, people from a, a variety of situations across the United States and in other countries and calm uh, that's what God has blessed us with the opportunity to do. When decades ago, Matt started this ministry by creating one of the first Christian apologetics websites, the whole point was to equip Christians everywhere with the resources and the answers they need to be able to engage in uh, evangelistic conversations with their neighbors, to be able to uh, uh, find answers to the questions they themselves are struggling with, dig deeper in God's Word, know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ more deeply and intimately, and to be a resource to the Church um, that uh, to, to help pastors and youth pastors and Sunday school teachers to be able to study and prepare and equip their people Sunday after Sunday and midweek Bible study after midweek Bible study. We are here to support the kingdom, equipping churches and individuals for the work of ministry. And if, uh, if you've benefited from CARM's ministry over the years, if this radio show or CARM's website, the articles we write or the seminars that we've done have been a benefit and a help to you, then we ask that you help, that you help us to pass that on 
to others. You can partner with us by going to CARM.org, C-A-R-M.org, slash donate, or bring it to our partnership page where you can give as little or as much as you can, a one-time gift or what really helps us is a monthly gift, $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Ministries like ours, God supports us through listeners and viewers like you, through Christians at home who support what we do. Thank you so much, those of us who have all, those of you who have already partnered with us. Uh, God uses you to make this work possible. And so we're able to be online, on the airwaves, and on the streets sharing the gospel with people and handing out tracts because you guys prayerfully and generously partner with us. Thank you for that. So if you're not partnered with us yet, go over to calm.org, and while you're there, sign up for our weekly newsletter to keep up with uh, the work that CARM is doing and seminars that might be coming up near you or online events you might want to tune in for, new articles that you might be interested in reading. And uh, yeah, that's the, that, the website is the, and the, the newsletter through that is a great way to keep in touch with CARM and stay a part of what we're doing. With that said, let's go ahead and jump to the phones. We've got Herb from Raleigh, North Carolina. Herb, you are on the air. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. I'm a Christian, so what I'm asking you, I'm not doubting or questioning the Lord. I just want to try to get a better understanding of how it works. All right, when your body dies, when you die, and it says absent from the body, present with the Lord. So you're with the Lord when you do die. All right, when God comes back in the clouds to take the people from here on earth who are Christians, those who are you know dead in Christ and those who are still on earth, how does that how does that fit in together? If you're already dead and you're with the Lord in heaven when you died, what is He coming back to get? If you know what I'm saying, if your soul is already absolutely in and. You know what I'm saying? That it's it's confusing. And Absolutely, like yes. That's a. I don't understand it. <laughs> it's an excellent question. So let me try to see if I can answer that simply for you. So okay. When we when we die, if you are a believer, if you have put your trust completely and fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, and trusted Him and His perfect work on the cross for your eternal life. When you die, your spirit, your soul, will be immediately in the presence of the Lord. As Paul describes it, as you just said, absent from the body, present, present with the Lord. And yet, that is not the final hope of the Christian, is for us to be disembodied souls in the presence of the Lord. In a sense, Paul says, it is better by far that I be dead and in God's presence than alive and absent from the Lord. But what we have ultimately is the even greater hope of the resurrection of our bodies, that we will, that our soul and body will be reunited, that we will be resurrected ever-living humans, perfected, the consequence of sin and death taken away, sickness and pain and mortality done away with, 
as Paul says elsewhere, that this mortal must put on immortality. This corruptible must put on incorruptible. And so, God, it's not that we want to ditch our body, that in the end we want our body made perfect and to live resurrected, alive, physically and spiritually in the presence of God. And so that is that future hope. And so those who are dead in Christ now, they have the great comfort of being in his presence while they await that day. But they're still awaiting their ultimate hope of resurrection when they will be both body and soul with Christ forever. So are they in heaven now, uh, you know, with God right now in heaven, or are they in like a, a different place with Jesus waiting for us, you know, the, the, Lord, the Lord to come back to unite our body and soul and then actually go to actual heaven? Well, we know that that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, right? Mm-hmm. So if we if if the if those who are dead in Christ are with the Lord, then they must too at this moment spiritually be consciously in in heaven in the presence of God. That's a wonderful thing. Okay. It's a great comfort for those of us who who know who know a brother or sister, a, a friend or neighbor, a a, a parent who has died in Christ, it's a great comfort to know that that's where they are right now. And yet it's also a great comfort to know that one day they will be in the body again. We will be able to embrace them again in the flesh. Yes, sir. And dwell with them as as men and women in Christ's presence. Well, let me ask ask one last part of that whole equation. Um, Sure. They talk about a new heaven a new earth, um, when the Lord destroys the earth by fire, gets rid of all the sin and the, the ugliness and the, sin, the evil, all of that, will, uh, okay, Matt explained to me the other day that we'll be on the same earth we're on now, but it'll be like upgraded, remodeled, how you want to say it. The Lord will make it perfect again like it once was before Adam and Eve sinned. So will we then be lit? Will heaven be actually on this planet Earth when the Lord, you know, comes back and comes with a new Earth, a new a new Jerusalem? Is that all still going to take place on the existing Earth we have now, after the Lord has made it perfect again? Uh, great question, and. Of course, there's room for believers to disagree on some of the details of this, but at the core of it, what the Scripture seems to teach is just as our bodies will be resurrected, made perfect and new, but ultimately still the same body that we have, just like when Jesus was resurrected, right? Yes, sir. His same body got up and came out of the grave, but now immortal, resurrected, eternal, right? Yes, sir. And so, in the same way, the earth itself, all creation, will be resurrected. It's under the curse of sin. It's broken under uh, groaning for that day of redemption. And after it's judged, after judgment is poured out in the fiery wrath of God, the, 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 the earth and this fallen creation will itself be, in a sense, we might say, resurrected. It'll be restored. It'll be made new, a continuation of what it was, but but made new, made 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 better. Um, all the consequences of sin removed from it, the curse relinquished, now perfected. 
And and to your earlier question, where you said, will heaven be on earth? Uh, In a a, a very real sense, the answer to that question is yes, because ultimately, heaven is where the presence of God is. And so when Revelation speaks of that glorious truth, in the last day when, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, when God himself is dwelling in our midst perfectly and completely, and on that day, wherever we are with him, that's heaven, if his presence yes. is there. And so when he is dwelling with us on the earth, it will be heaven, because his presence is there. Well, all of those things are just so comforting and so wonderful. I'm 66 years old. I became a Christian at age 12. And all the years of being a Christian has been wonderful. But as you get older, and naturally as you think about, you're closer to the end of your life than you were in your 20s and you know teens, whatever. But as you think about that, instead of being sad about it, it's it's really... And it, like I have a thrill inside knowing that I'm at least getting closer to that day more Amen. when I'll get to be with the Lord. And that's not so bad. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, thank you yeah, so much. That, for your I, I, that, is a, that is a very healthy way to look at that. And, and, and praise God for the wisdom He's given you in being able to see and rejoice in that, because it's true uh, that you know, aging and death is hard, but it's not the end. And after it comes something so much better. And as believers who truly trust in Christ, we can rejoice even in the pains yes. of age or sickness or death because we know what he will give us afterward. Well, have you got All right. more questions? If you don't have time, that's okay. We're going to a break right now, but if you can hold... I'll bring you back on for another question right after this. Will that work for you, Herb? All right. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. All right. All right. We'll be back right after this break. It's Matt Slick Live, taking your calls at 877-207-2276. Here's Matt Slick. Welcome back to the show. This is Luke Wayne, a colleague of Matt's at the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. I'm filling in for Matt today while he is doing some ministry with the Aramaic Broadcasting Network. And so I'm uh, able to step in for him here. And if you are new to the show, again, this is a Christian Apologetics uh, ministry. We answer your difficult questions about challenging uh, passages of Scripture, objections to the faith, um, false religions, cults, uh, anything in those categories, Christian theology and doctrine. If you have questions, please call us at 877-207-2276. We are eager to be a resource to you to answer your questions and to hear from you. Speaking of which, let's get back to the phones. We've got Herb from Raleigh still on the line. Yes, sir. Herb, you are on the air. Yes, sir. Thank you so much again. My last question is, people who are Catholic, they, have, they believe in the Catholic, their, their beliefs, in other words, 
what I'm asking, I've got a friend who is a devout Catholic, but she doesn't actually pray to Mary per se, but she's dead set on believing as a Catholic believes. My question is, will that person go to heaven if if you're not, if, you know, if you're praying to Mary or, you know, accepting the majority of the, you know, the uh, Catholic belief, do, do those people just do not make it to heaven? Or how does that work? I mean, there's so many people who are Catholic, and I just, I kind of worry. My sister married a Catholic, and they don't pray to Mary, but they do consider themselves Catholic. So I'm, I worry about them, you know, not being saved, even though my younger sister did accept the Lord when she was young in the Baptist Church. But now she's converted to Catholicism because of her husband. So I guess that's that's my angle. I'm 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 concerned about her salvation, but I don't want to step on toes, you know, with her. But yet, I, if it's something I need to talk to her about, I just don't know which way to go. I understand very much where you're coming from, and that is especially when it's uh, when it's a family member or somebody who we know and love. It it uh, there's a particular it gets personal, and it should. Uh, and so, you know, the, the the answer to your question is if somebody uh, goes along with all of official Roman Catholic doctrine, including their teachings on justification, on works, on things like, like that, then that person has accepted a different gospel. And, and we absolutely, that, that's a serious matter. Um, but not everyone who identifies as a Roman Catholic or who attends a Roman Catholic church and thinks of themselves as Catholic accepts every single part of Roman Catholic doctrine, even if they think they do. If you ask, hey, do you accept all of Roman Catholic doctrine? Of course I do. You ask what they mean about that. And so one of the best things you can do is to ask them personally what they believe about the core issues and really dig into that. The, you know, it, it's interesting you should ask this question. Today, you, you, you might not realize, October 31st, this is Reformation Day. This is the, the, the day... Is commemorated when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the, the the castle door in Wittenberg, which is one of the events that sparked the Protestant Reformation. That really makes this conversation that we're having uh, uh, t- today possible. And yeah. and so you know these these are the one of the core issues in that was this, what we're talking about right here that justification is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, not by grace and faith and works, not beginning by grace and faith and then finished through works and meritorious acts, and uh, not by the grace of Christ and the merit of the saints and Mary. And so where is this person putting their faith? On the, the, all, the other, all the other issues aside, what, what is the, the, the question that you need to get down to is, what if this person were to die today and stand before God, on what basis do they believe they would be justified in his presence and given eternal life with him? Well, she became a Christian at age 12. Now she's 50-something years old, and she's in the Catholic Church. So did she stop being a Christian? Since You know, you, you become a Christian, they say you won't lose your salvation. 
did she, could she have lost her salvation by switching to the Catholic Church? And if she does accept all of their current doctrines, that, that's kind well, of a, if, interrelated to what we're if, saying. <laughs> yeah, if someone professes faith in the true gospel, but then later walks away from it and embraces a false gospel and joins uh, joins a false religion and never comes back, then what Scripture leads us to conclude is that that person did not have a genuine saving faith in the first place. It's not that they lost it, it's that the the faith they had was a superficial faith and not a genuine faith. If you look, for example, at the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about people who uh, get really excited and seem to grow really fast in their faith, but they actually have no root. And the trials and troubles of life uh, scorch and destroy, and, and they, they fall away. And others yes. who grow, grow up among thorns, the temptations that choke out their faith, and they, they fall away because they're tempted and drawn away by something else. And in both those cases, they never bear any fruit. That person would never genuinely had the life of faith in them. It, when, when you read, uh, read the, this, this account in the, the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all, ha- all tell of this parable. And when you read it, it's only of the good soil that grows up and bears fl- fruit that Jesus says that they genuinely understood the Gospel. And so that they, they understood, and therefore... So um, there is... A, a, a false faith, a superficial faith where somebody can hear about Jesus, hear the gospel, get excited, and kind of follow along with it for a while, but the trials and troubles of life or the temptations and snares that lead us away will expose if that faith was genuine. As later yes. would be written in First John, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out with us to show that they were not of us. So that, that yes. departure. Now, does that mean that a true Christian can't get caught up in a wrong thing for a while and then realize their, their error and come back? No, that, hap- that, that happens. That's different. Yes. Um, and so we should, not, we should not give up on somebody who seems to be wandering down a wrong path. We should lovingly urge them to return to the simplicity of the gospel and the, the, the grace alone to himself preached. Does that make yes, sense? Sir. Yes, sir. It makes a lot of sense, and I really appreciate your help on this. It's been things I've been, been on my mind, and I said, I've got to call Matt or whoever's available and just get their feeling on it, because I, I care about her salvation, and I want to do whatever I can to make sure she's right with the Lord. All right. Well, I will be praying for her too, Herb, and uh, call, call back anytime, and we can talk more about it. All right, we're going to a break now. Thank you so much for your call, uh, Herb. Uh, you have a Thank wonderful day. Much. All right. You too. God bless. For the rest of you, stay with us. We will be back after this break. It's Matt Slick Live, taking your calls at 877-207-2276. Here's Matt Slick. Welcome back to the show. This is Luke Wayne, a colleague of Matt Slick at CARM.org, the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. I'm filling in for Matt today while he is 
engaged in ministry elsewhere and excited to be here with you guys answering your questions. If you have any questions about biblical doctrine, Christian theology, church history, uh, uh, comparative religions, cults, false religions, objections to the Christian faith, We're excited to hear from you guys here on the show, and so give us a call at 877-207-2276. That said, let's get right back to the phone lines, where we've got Mike from Durham, North Carolina. Mike, you are on the air. Hello, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a question about Matthew 18.15. Uh, different translations have it different. Some are sins against you, like the New King James Version, but the NIV just says if a brother or sister sins. Um, when I read it, I kind of tend to view it as if you see a brother or sister sinning, you should call them out on that, even if they're not sinning against you. But I can't, looking through concordance and stuff, I can't find what the true translation is supposed to be. I was wondering if you could help me with that. Okay. Give me just a second as I am pulling up the passage right now. And Matthew eighteen fifteen. So we have over if a brother trespasses again. Okay, so your your question is specifically dealing with the the wording against you, which which appears in some translations and not in others. Is that correct? That is correct. You know, um, I think the okay. way I had always viewed it was the NIV translation, and then someone had corrected me saying, "No, it's sinned against you." If someone's sinning that's different than if they sin against you. It's talking more about sinning against you, not just sinning in general. It kind of bothers me. Uh, So, uh, well, I'm pulling up the concordance data here. Just in general, it is, uh, it is certainly, you know, true. Your, your impulse to say, Hey, if I see my brother in sin, regardless of whether it's directed towards me or I'm personally affected by it, I still ought to um, constructively, out of love for them and a desire to restore them to to a proper walk and turn them away from evil, I ought to confront and and rebuke and address that uh, uh, that that brother. That's. That's certainly true. And so, regardless of where we land on which translations write on this verse, you can go to other passages where uh, James five nineteen, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will rescue his soul from death. Uh, that That's... Uh, that's a powerful testimony that if we see someone wandering into sin, whether it's directed at us or not, we absolutely should intervene out of love and desire to to deliver them from the consequences of that sin, right? So, absolutely. so I think there's certainly an ap- an application there that the rest of Scripture would say would still apply 
to the the context of seeing seeing a brother in sin, even if that sin is not directed specifically toward us. Um, so, having said that, specifically dealing with Matthew eighteen, uh, it appears, if I'm seeing this right, that there. Uh, if someone sins toward uh, toward you, is I'm I'm seeing it in the Greek that uh, that could be a textual variant there that some of the translations are relying on manuscripts that do not have that. Uh, but my program's having trouble bringing that data up right now, and so um, it it seems to me from the the, the Greek text I've got in front of me right now that against uh, someone sins against you is a defensible translation here. And so the context of Matthew 18 is probably focused on what you should do in the case of an, uh, an offense, how you should handle if someone has wronged you in some way that you should not immediately go public and, and make some big scene about it. You should not, that there is a process you should handle to rightly address this wrong that has been done. So the most direct, immediate application to, to this text in Matthew does seem to be in how you, how you respond when you have been wronged by, by, by the, the sin of a brother. That said... I, I do believe that the process laid out here is, is, is more broadly applicable, even if Jesus was most directly talking to where we have the greatest temptation to do things the wrong way. When someone sins against us, when we are angered by it, hurt by it, offended by it, is when we're most likely to act out of the flesh and handle things the wrong way and add our sin to their sin by abusing our brother instead of working to restore them and handle handle things rightly. And so I think Jesus would be right to emphasize that kind of situation in his instructions. But I do think that there is certainly a broader application when we look at this in light of the rest of Scripture to say, okay, if you're going to rebuke someone for a sin, even if you're not offended by it, out of love and desire to restore them, this is still a healthy process to follow. Because the desire is not to make a public scene out of their sin, but to restore them. And we escalate along the lines of the, the discipline laid out here, first individually and then with witnesses, simply because they can verify the reality. Look, yes, you, com you, you committed the sin. We've all seen it. You need to turn from this. And finally, before the Church, only if that becomes absolutely necessary, with an abject refusal to repent. I believe that that process is certainly a healthy and biblical way for us to approach, uh, you know, generally our rebuke of a brother in sin. But there is something distinctive about those times when your flesh wants to do more because the sin was against you. So I think it would be fitting for Jesus to single that context out when he offers these instructions. Does that make sense? It does. It's, uh, I never thought of it as the way is a way to kind of maybe suppress my anger or earthly, you know, desire for 
I don't know, harming somebody. I, I think a, something that I haven't seen much of, though, is I think on a, a micro level between friends, you know, friends that I've had who are Christians and vice versa, you know, we try to hold each other accountable. And I think that's part of the fellowship of the church. And I think on a, a small level, you know, I've been part of that where I've, I've pointed stuff out and people pointed out stuff about me. And it has been to build up the body of Christ. Um, but I've almost never, or, or never that I can think of, seen it in a church setting. I've never seen it escalate. Is that because churches are afraid to do church discipline? Or do you think things get resolved prior to uh, getting to that level? I think both of those things are true. I think that if the Matthew 18 process of confronting someone's sin is applied correctly, most of the time it will be dealt with before you'll ever have to see it happen. If you go and talk to someone and they repent and you, you, you guys reconcile and it's over with, then you never have to tell anyone else about it, and you, no one else would see that. No one else would know what happened. If you brought a couple witnesses along and then the person repented and you resolved it, and then, okay, you've restored them to fellowship. You don't need to go expose that sin any further and go trout it out and make a big scene out of it. It's, it's, it's resolved. It's done. Um, now, that sin may have affected someone else that they need to go, go on and deal with. There, there may be more, depending on the specific type of sin, more individuals will need to hear, but it won't become a big public scene. And so if this is done right, the only times that it would become well-known and become a church-wide issue is the obstinate, unrepentant person who, regardless of being confronted, will not turn. So then that gets to your questions, why don't we see that happening? Well, in some cases it might be because the church is healthy and the people are repenting before it ever comes to that, and so that just—that hopefully that would be rare. Um, but there are certainly also cases, unfortunately, where churches are so hesitant to follow through on this plain biblical teaching of, of, of taking discipline to that level. I have seen churches do it. It does happen. But you are right. It is unfortunately in our in our current day, we we're, we're, we're so hesitant to follow through on that, and it's that. It's Matt Slick live, taking your calls at eight seven seven two zero seven two two seven six. Here's Matt Slick. Welcome back to the show. This is Luke Wayne filling in for Matt Slick today while he is out engaged in other ministry opportunities, and uh, he will be back with you again, Lord willing, tomorrow. But for the rest of the day, uh, I'll be with you answering your questions. If you have those questions, call me at 877-207-2276. Now let's get right back on the lines with uh, Mike from Durham, North Carolina, who was talking about Matthew 18 and the process of church discipline. Yeah. All um, right, Mike, you, yeah, are, ba- you are back on the break. air. Right. Um, I think I have like a little bit of follow-up with it because I don't know if it's generational or it's always been like this, but people um, have always had, or it seems like people have a hard time dealing with difficult conversations. And, you know, I think the early stages of church discipline, that is having a very uncomfortable conversation with somebody that you should be fellowshipping with, 
or who may be a friend of yours that you might be, you know, kind of in fear of. And I think a lot of us, you know, are groomed with work and school and everything. There are discipline processes at those places that are well-known, written down. Do churches write down kind of their interpretation of church discipline and have that written in some bylaws or something? Is that normal, or is this just kind of something that people turn to the Scripture and use their own interpretation? Is there a standardization, I guess, in churches? And that that would depend on the church. There are a number of churches that do, based on passages like Matthew 18, other passages in Corinthians and, and elsewhere, that deal specifically with rebuke, confrontation, and how that escalates to church-wide discipline. Uh, there, there, are, there are many churches that do have a systematized, they've taken all those passages and they've put together, okay, this is what the procedure looks like for our church, just to take some of the ambiguity away so people aren't um, left wondering, okay, what do I do next? They're, they're, they sort of lay it out for their people and, and have that um, systematic theology and approach and would be written in, often in documents like bylaws, just like you said. Uh, there are other churches that do not, that let the Scriptures speak for themselves and allow a certain liberty in those matters. And unfortunately, there are churches that simply don't practice this at all and avoid these kind of questions, and uh, uh, sadly that is the case. But uh, but yeah, so the answer is both approaches are taken by churches. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I think that um, a lot of churches I've been at have kind of encouraged small groups to... to you know, do true fellowship, and, you know, where you eat together, you pray together, you learn together, and, you know, you talk about issues together, and I I do believe kind of on a small level that, you know, that's a great place for it. I just, you know, I think from the outside looking in, you know, if I was going to a church, I would love for them to have kind of those bylaws, that process, maybe even talk to small group leaders and others about the process more. It just seems to be something I've I've never experienced in a church was a church talking about that or having something written down about it. So I think that's why I'm curious no, about and it. I, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. And and for churches that are hesitant to put it in documentation for fear that they're going to add rules that are that are beyond the uh, the Bible and, and they 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 want to be careful about that. I can understand that. But I would say, to the, po- to the point you're making, that such a church needs to teach on this subject often, if they're using a small group ministry, needs to make sure that their small group leaders are regularly trained in this the biblical teachings on church discipline and, and rebuke and confrontation so that they know how to carry that out among the people that they are regularly doing life with so that these things can be done biblically. Because it's, it's for... The, the, the individual who falls into sin needs their brothers and sisters to do this for them. They, they need it. It's helpful. It, it's, 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 it's of, the, the soul is, is crushed under sin that is not repented of. We, we need that help from our brothers to, to, to guide us out of that. But also, the Church as a whole, the Church community, is damaged by unrepentant sin. Um, 
even if you don't know about it, there, there is spiritual harm done to the church when unrepentant sin is thriving in the church. And so for, for the sake of the whole and for the sake of the individual, uh, I think you're absolutely right. This needs to be taught on more in our, in our churches. Our leaders at every level, the pastors, the Sunday school teachers, the small group leaders, need to be well-trained in this and able to equip their people and carry it out well. And uh, there, unfortunately, are a lot of churches who have dropped the, dropped the ball on that. There are others who do great on it. I don't want to, to make blanket statements. I've been at churches where I've seen, seen discipline done very well. And so I've seen great models of how it can be done. And so there are super healthy churches that do this right, but there are a lot of churches that do it wrong. And I think you're right. I think our modern culture's squeamishness about confronting people and having difficult conversations lies at the, lies at the heart of that a lot of times. Okay, great. Thank you for taking my call. I, I know myself, I need a, a lot of accountability. I need... I need people around me to point out things that I may not recognize or I don't want to recognize. So I know for me this is yeah, a and huge for my I, I think you should go go to the leaders of your church and be open about that and start a conversation at your church. Or or and if there's an absolute refusal of your church to be in line with that biblical teaching, then look for a church that takes it seriously. But you're right. You do need to be, we all need to be, living in a context of Christian community that takes, that takes our sin seriously and is willing to confront it. And so I, I know you need that because I need that. We all do. All right. Well, very good. I'll let you get on to uh, whoever's next. And thank you for taking All my right, call. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you very much for, uh, for calling in for with with your question and for your patience with all the breaks and the waits on that. Thanks, thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, no problem. Bye. All right. Okay, that was Mike from Durham. We are now going to Alberto from Georgia. Alberto, you Good are evening, on the sir. air. Yes. My good evening, is, Alberto. Uh, good evening. Good evening, sir. Thank you. Thank you for my call. My question is uh, uh, 1 Peter 1, 5, verses uh, uh, Jude 1, I think it's verse 14 through 19. So, uh, okay, give me... All right, so the first one you said was 1 Peter... What now? 1, 5. First Peter one five, okay. Uh, so First Peter one five, which says, "Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for uh, oh, just for the for the for the listeners, so they understand your question." I'm going to go ahead and read the read the first passage. So, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time? Okay, and then you said Jude. Um, verses uh-huh. fourteen one, and one. Wait, 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 wait. It's, it's verse. Really, the verses uh, one, uh, one twenty-one. That's the one. Are you are you still there with me? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Jude one twenty-one. Okay, so uh, one, verse twenty-one. So what? Uh, so verse twenty-one. 
Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord, Jesus Christ, that leads to eternal life. All right, so, so what's your question about these two verses? Okay, uh, is it by God's power I'm kept, or is it my, my, my effort to keep myself in the love of God to, to, to be kept? So is it, oh, is it God's I apologize, you're, you're, cut, you're, cutting it, you're cutting in and out. You're cutting in out just a little bit. I, I wasn't able to hear you. Is it by God's power I'm kept, or is it by my own effort that I'm kept? Oh, well, but it is. Answer my question. It is by. Is it by if, God's if, power? If, I'm if kept. somebody, if somebody is in Christ, if they have put their faith and trust in Him, if He has He has put His Spirit in that person, given them a new heart forgiven them of their sins, granted them eternal life by His grace, through His perfect finished work, it is by God's power that that person is preserved. And so in Jude, uh, yes, it says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, we can hear that building yourselves up and keeping yourselves in the love of God and say, oh, it's all on me. Um, But what does it go on to say in verse 24? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. So after talking about our responsibility and what we are supposed to do as believers, he goes on to say, that it is ultimately him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless on that uh, on that day mm-hmm. with glory and great joy. So Jude does not contradict Peter here at all. Jude puts it entirely, it is the power of God that does that. But the power of God does work itself out in us in a way that that those who are genuine believers do respond. Um, in faith, and that faith uh, will be lived out. And so we do have a responsibility and fear and trembling to follow God, and yet it is not that He has put it in our fleshly hands to preserve our own salvation, but rather even those warnings, even those passages that challenge us to do God's will and to do what is right, those are God's Word graciously working in the heart of the believer, that the power of God would work itself out in us in every way. But at the end of the day, even Jude says that it is God who keeps you from stumbling. It is God who presents you blameless, not you who can keep yourself from stumbling or present yourself blameless. Uh-huh. So, what, so I heard some other ministers, I just heard them just even today, before I call you, there was a woman asking about if a person, you know, walks away or forsakes the Lord, like, but like the example Demas, Paul said he loved this present world, as his forsaken, you know. So so if a, if a believer could be 20 years in serving church, then suddenly, well, you decide not to serve the Lord no more, and you decide to go back in the world, or... 
the, the cares of this world or the, the, the appeal of this world draws him more than the love of God, even though he accepted Christ already, and based on these verses, like you say, it's God, not us. But what about if he, if he goes back in the world again? He just completely abandons the things of God. He don't want to go to church no more. He doesn't care about Christ no longer. Well, that person still kept by God's power. Well, we're, we're out of time. The show's wrapping up, but the simple answer is that Jesus says, as I mentioned earlier in the show, in places like the parable of the sower, the one who has genuine faith will go on to bear fruit. The one who falls away from the trials and temptations shows that they never really had the life of Christ in them. They never really understood the gospel and believed. It exposes the reality of... Another program powered by the Truth Network.